I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. In this podcast, I'm going to cover some of the content from the January edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on bile stain vomiting in the neonatal period. Bile stain vomiting is a red flag symptom and may indicate intestinal obstruction. The challenge is to select which patients may have a time-critical surgical condition. For example, volvulus, where a delay in treatment is likely to compromise gut viability and therefore urgent referral for assessment in a paediatric surgical unit is indicated. In this issue, Mohi Nuddin and colleagues report the outcome of 163 neonates with bile stain vomiting referred to their unit over a four-year period. A surgical diagnosis was more common in infants with abdominal distension, although interestingly not a tense abdomen, abdominal tenderness and an abnormal plain abdominal x-ray with sensitivities of 74%, 62% and 97% respectively. A normal plain abdominal x-ray reduced the risk from 50% to 16% overall, although didn't exclude completely a surgical cause of the vomiting. The presence of a soft abdomen was not predictive. Clinical signs and plain radiology were not predictors of whether the surgical condition was time critical or not. This is a very interesting data set and of course only reflects cases referred to the unit. It does however suggest that if bile stain vomiting is present and confirmed urgent referral to a paediatric surgical centre is indicated. In an accompanying editorial, Simon Blackburn discusses the findings and supports the author's recommendation regarding urgent referral. The second article I'd like to cover relates to Is Paracetamol Safe? Paracetamol is the most widely used medication in children in hospital and in the community, used for its analgesic and antipyretic properties. It's important, therefore, to explore and to understand any potential toxic effects. Exposure to paracetamol in pregnancy has been associated with childhood asthma. In this issue, Chilo and colleagues report a meta-analysis with the odds ratio for developing asthma after adjusting for respiratory infections being 1.06 suggesting the effect is likely to be minimal. The potential hepatotoxicity of paracetamol is well known, and in this issue, Rajan Nayagam and colleagues report a retrospective analysis of the etiology of acute liver failure in children over 10 years. 14 out of 54 were attributed to paracetamol, the majority due to medication errors. Seven received doses in excess of 12 milligrams per kilogram per day. Many of the other children received a double dose or two frequent doses or co-administration with other medication containing paracetamol or regular paracetamol for up to 21 days. These findings are important and they're interesting and they're discussed in an accompanying editorial, Is Paracetamol Safe? The third article I'd like to cover this month relates to Erlos-Danlos syndrome. 
The term Erlos-Danlos syndrome encompasses a group of inherited connective tissue disorders, separate and distinct entities. The manifestations, mild to severe, can be seen in skin, joints, blood vessels and internal organs. In an authoritative review, Glenda Sobey discusses the different subtypes and the genetic basis where known. She emphasises the importance of the history and clinical signs in selecting the most appropriate investigation and the specific features and management for each of the subtypes classical, hypermobile, vascular, kyphoscoliotic, arthrochalasic and dermatosporactic. Erlos-Danlos syndrome needs to be considered when, in the absence of another explanation, one or more of the following occur. Late walking with joint hypermobility, abnormal bruising and bleeding, unexplained vessel rupture or dissection, tissue fragility, atrophic scarring or skin hyperextensibility, symptomatic joint hypermobility or hollow organ rupture. Consideration of and correct diagnosis within the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome spectrum allows targeted management, family screening and prenatal diagnosis. The fourth article I'd like to cover this month relates to whether or not the EEG helps in the assessment of staring in children with autistic spectrum disorder. Children with autistic spectrum disorder have complex medical needs which can be difficult to assess and manage. There is an increase in the prevalence of epilepsy and a higher incidence of EEG abnormalities than in the normal population. Staring and reduced responsiveness can be due to epilepsy but as a wide differential diagnosis with the risk of episodic altered responsiveness communication or behaviour being erroneously attributed to absence of focal discognitive seizures. How useful then is the EEG? Hughes and colleagues in this issue report on the outcome of EEGs in children with autistic spectrum disorder. That's 92 children, less than 16 years, all referred for further investigation of staring. No child had absence or focal discognitive seizures confirmed on EEG, although abnormal features were seen in 12, seven with changes typical of benign focal epilepsy of childhood, none of which were felt to be relevant to the presenting symptoms. The authors rightly conclude that this low yield of significant abnormalities mean that EEGs should be undertaken judiciously and interpreted cautiously in children with autistic spectrum disorder who present with staring. I would like to briefly mention an authoritative review published this month on the management of peanut allergy. Peanut allergy is common and can cause severe life-threatening reactions. It's usually lifelong. Anna Gostu and colleagues present a review regarding the assessment and management. The authors emphasise the importance of a correct diagnosis with carefully conducted challenge in cases where there is disagreement between the clinical picture and results of IgE, RAST and skin prick testing. There's no evidence that maternal avoidance or delayed introduction into the diet reduce prevalence. Management is by strict avoidance, education and provision of emergency medication. 
food avoidance can be challenging, particularly from ambiguous food labelling and cross-contamination. Best care in the school setting is crucial. I'd like to finish by talking about an article which relates to improving the care of children and young people in the UK. Much has been achieved for the care of children over the last 20 years. And in this issue, Professor Al Ainsley Green reflects on both the achievements and challenges. Children are generally healthier and fewer die. Children's cancers can now be cured. Advances in immunisation have reduced significantly the burden of infectious disease. Children have a more prominent voice in their care, just to name but some. There is, however, what he calls an inconvenient paradox, in that despite these advances, there are still significant challenges. In 2007, the UK ranked bottom in the UNICEF League on the well-being of children in the richest countries of the world. Teenage pregnancy rates are high. We have some of the highest obesity rates in Europe. Numeracy and literacy rates need to improve and there are continuing challenges protecting children from exploitation. His perspective, very interesting to read, reflects his experiences as Professor of Child Health, National Children's Director and Children's Commissioner for England, with discussion of the policy changes that have occurred, initiatives for children and the need to move forward. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening.